0: Morning. We uh, start to look at a what we would call a philosophy of ministry, and what we mean by that is simply if someone were to ask you, "What is Emmanuel Bible Church?" Um, maybe colloquially, "What is it exactly that you guys do?" Like, what, what would you say is your purpose? What, what do you do? Uh, the answer is found in Colossians one, verses twenty-eight and twenty-nine, and. What we need to know is that this is one of the many places that we could draw from the life of the Apostle Paul as an example for us today, uh, and how we are to live, and and how we are to operate in the ministry of the gospel. Now, of course, there are certain aspects of Paul's ministry that are unique to him as an apostle, we're not carrying uh, apostolic authority, Uh, but Paul's example among various churches as he ministers to them Sets a pattern for our ministry today. And this pattern is seen most clearly and concisely in Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29. Let me read the text for us. We proclaim Him, that is Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we might present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which he mightily works within me. Paul's example provides us with something of a blueprint for understanding the mission of the church. And this blueprint is broad enough to encompass both aspects of the church's mission. Uh, The first aspect is our external mission of evangelism. And at the center of the evangelistic mission of the church is we proclaim Jesus Christ. But it's also broad enough to encompass the church's internal mission, which is our mission of discipleship, uh, seeing each other grow in the likeness of, of Christ, the one whom we proclaim. And if we were to boil down the mission of the church to a small sentimental statement, it would be that the mission of the church is to speak. The mission that we have is a speaking mission. Be that to the unbelieving world around us, or be that to one another, that we would be conformed to the likeness of our great God and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. The proclamation of Jesus is the mission of the church. Now, um, at the Iron Man Summit, I got to preach on this passage and gave a focus on the evangelistic mission of the church. But this morning, we're going to cover the internal discipleship mission of the church under the same text. And we're going to consider six essential aspects of our ministry at Emmanuel Bible Church. This is really going to shape and inform all of the ministry that we do. This is central to our purpose together as we would gather week in and week out with the proclamation of Christ. We begin now with the first essential aspect, and that is, number one, the goal of our ministry. The goal of our ministry. We see a purpose clause in verse 28 in the latter half of the verse. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. You think about it in in one sense. To aim for the conversion of unbelievers is too small of an aim for the church. Paul has a a deeper aim. that, That these believers would come to completeness in Christ. We have to ask the question, what does it mean to be complete in Christ? Well, it does not allude to any sense of an incomplete salvation. We learn in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So in one sense, we are positionally given all that Christ is, his robes for my rags at conversion. That's a completed reality. But there's also a practical completeness to which the apostle would urge us to strive, growing in complete conformity to Christ in practice. Uh, We're not yet in practice what we are in position, and that's our aim together. That's why the Apostle Peter has to exhort his audience in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a coming day when we will be made perfect in practice. This is our hope, and this hope is purchased for us by the work of our Savior. We read of this hope in places like 1 John 3, 2. The Apostle John writes, Beloved, now we are children of God. Right now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. There's something of a fullness yet to come. We know that when, when he appears, that is when Christ returns and appears, we will be like them, like him because we will see him just as he is. The very instrument of our hope that will bring us into the full conformity and likeness of our Savior is when we get to see him. You think about the wonder of that hope. We will get to see the hands that were pierced on Calvary's cross for us. We will get to see the face that was spit on and mocked for us. We will see the resurrected and risen body of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will get to feel him. We will get to embrace him in His risen and glorified humanity, and the sight of that resurrected King is what will occasion our complete transformation, the fullness of being ready to embrace His glory forever. Friends, this is the goal of our ministry. The goal of our ministry together is to help one another along on the way to the blessed sight of our Savior. We do that by encouraging each other. We do that by proclaiming Christ to each other. Our goal is to help each other along to heaven. And though our hope for heaven in Christ is eternally secure, the path that he calls us home on is a path that requires our work, our effort, our striving. Hebrews twelve fourteen tells us to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. There's no heaven without the pursuit of sanctification in this life. Our pursuit of sanctification, therefore, matters. There's no heaven without it. There are many aspects of this completeness that Paul has in mind. If you think about what we read later in the letter to the Colossians, in Colossians 3 and and moving forward, we, we read that we're to put to death what is earthly among us. We're to set our minds on things above. We're to strive for unity. We're to love one another. We're to be patient with one another. We're to forgive one another. This is what Paul longs for in his brothers and sisters. He says in Galatians 4.19, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Paul is so eager, so longing to see Christ formed in these brothers and sisters, to see them come to completeness in Christ, that he describes it in terms of labor pains. Now, I wouldn't make that analogy because... I know people who have gone through labor, so I, I shouldn't say labor pains are, are something that I'm aware of, but Paul's an inspired apostle, so he employs the metaphor. But think of the picture that's there, that that longing with, with this intense labor pain until Christ is formed in you. Think of what, what an intense picture that is, and ask yourself the question, do you know something of this deep and heart-wrenching concern that your brothers and sisters would know and show more of Jesus in their lives? Is that, is that ever on the forefront of your considerations? That your brothers and sisters would be better reflectors of the glory of God in Christ? That they would know something more of Him? And if you, have you caught a sight of, of Jesus, that ever-faithful husband to His bride? How He loves her and cherishes her and leads her? If that's the case then out of love for that blessed Savior of ours, we must be committed to and invested in this sanctification of those who comprise the bride of our King. One of the thoughts that should compel us to invest in one another, to see one another come to completeness in Christ, is that we so long for our blessed Savior to receive a pure bride. We so long, he is so worthy is so worthy of a bride that is spotless, that is free of of blemish. And we play a role in seeing that come to fruition. I was reading not long ago the congregational minister of the 19th century, John Angel James, and he's writing on the responsibility that we all have as members of a church, and particularly members of a local congregation. And he asks this question, am I my brother's keeper? Who asked that question in the Old Testament? Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? And he says, that was an inquiry suitable enough on the lips of a murderer. It's appropriate that a murderer would ask that question. But most unsuitable and inconsistent from a Christian. We are brought into fellowship for the very purpose of being keepers of each other. We long to see each other on that final day before Our risen King who calls us home to Himself. And so we invest in each other. Our goal in all of the ministry that we do is to see one another brought along into completeness, to be presented at that final day as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our goal. Second is the the substance of our ministry. The substance of our ministry. How do we work toward that great end? What has God given us so that we would contribute to the conclusion of that day? Answer, we proclaim him. Notice the we. We proclaim him. In context, that's Paul, that's Timothy, that's the brothers, that's writing. But it's inclusive of that church. And it's certainly inclusive of each of us. The proclamation of Jesus is not the role only of the pulpit. It's not just the role of the preacher. That's what we do. What is it that IBC does? We proclaim Christ. That's what we do together. That's what we're here for. This is the essence of discipleship. This is the medium through which maturity is granted, the proclamation of Jesus. And if you're in Colossians, look over at chapter 2. If you think about, this isn't just a few statements or a few facts about Jesus that we just repeat endlessly. No, we're drawing from an infinite source. Colossians two three says that Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Christ that we proclaim is infinite. He's inexhaustible. And the Bible itself can conceive of no wisdom or knowledge that exists outside of him. That is to say, he encompasses all wisdom and knowledge as the one who is called the word of God. This is the Jesus that we proclaim to one another. Drawing from an inexhaustible source, I want you to look at Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. Consider with me something of the fullness and the grandeur of the Christ that we get to proclaim to one another. Colossians 1:15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That tells us that the Christ that we proclaim to one another is the mediator who makes the invisible God visible. The one who is the only way between fallen image bearers and their God as the one who is the image of God. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The Christ that we proclaim is the creator. The one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were made. The one with All strength as the creator. And what we see in Christ is the wonderful reality that in him, the creator draws near to the creature. The God who should seem infinitely distant from us comes to us and even takes on us, our flesh, so that he could be the mediator between God and man. This is the Christ that we have to proclaim to one another. This ought to be the most joyful employment of our lips to speak of one so lovely one that we shouldn't even be worthy of saying his name, and we get the privilege of preaching him to each other. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Brothers and sisters, the Christ that we proclaim to each other is the sustainer of the universe. He's the one who has been sustaining and keeping all things by the word of his power ever since the creation. This is the one that we encourage one another to look to. This is the one who is our hope, This is the one who is even holding us together when it seems that we should be falling apart. This is the Christ that we have to proclaim to one another. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The Christ that we have to proclaim to one another is the head of his church and he is to occupy first place. And what a sweet thing it is when Jesus has first place. When Jesus is at the head, when we're not for Paul or for Apollos or for any other esteemed teacher, but Jesus Christ is all and everything. He is preeminent. Verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Christ that we proclaim is nothing less than the infinite God. And if we're familiar with our Bibles, we we read from the Old Testament that only God can say Timeless accounts of this refrain, salvation is of Yahweh, it belongs to Yahweh, and what we see in Jesus is that Yahweh has come near in flesh as this only God who can save. This is the Jesus that we have to proclaim to one another, and finally in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the Christ that we proclaim The only redeemer of ruined rebels. The only one who can bring peace between God and man. And he does it at the cost of his human life given on the cross. This is the Jesus that we get to proclaim to one another. And we proclaim him in so many ways. Every Sunday, every Lord's Day that you're here, believe it or not, you're actually proclaiming the glory of Jesus. You're proclaiming this Jesus. What are you doing when we're singing songs together? You're lifting your voice to proclaim not only unto Him, but unto one another. Sing to each other psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. That's what we're doing when we sing words like these. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him, and pardon me, to look on Christ bleeding in my stead then pardon me. Don't you love Jesus? Don't you love his cross? Don't you love to sing his praises? Don't you love it when we rehearse these truths that are, are the very hope of our eternal salvation? Then you should love to speak about him too. You should love to, to encourage one another with, with what you've been learning of him in your own private studies you should love to reflect on a song lyric over lunch as you think of the glory of Jesus. This is what sinners need if they will be saved. But this is what saints need if they will be sanctified. There's no difference in the substance. We proclaim Jesus. There are countless stories of famous pulpits that have a little sign for the preacher inside of the pulpit that says, Sir, we would see Jesus. It's something every preacher should see as he delivers the word of God. Spurgeon said it a little more strongly. He said, No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. I would say, Amen. He's the substance of all of our hope. And so we proclaim him in our pulpits. We proclaim him in our children's Sunday school classes. We proclaim him in our youth ministry. We proclaim him in our adult Sunday school classes. We proclaim him in our songs of worship. That's all to be expected. But we proclaim him in our relationships too. With one another. We share what we're learning of him. What he's teaching us. What what we're seeing of his hand in providence. uh, What we're enjoying of his glory in his word. What we're bearing in memory as we're reminded of him in the songs we sing. In the sermons we hear. In the books that we read. He's the subject of our discourse as we spend time together. Think of just how how often this can be happening. You get together to hang out with with one of your brothers or sisters and just spend time together and out of the overflow of your heart, you share what what you're seeing of Christ or what you're seeing in the word of God. This is the proclamation of Jesus to one another. We want to create space for this to happen in our church. That's why we, we, we want to have regular fellowship meals twice a month where we come together. It's not just to enjoy good food and company That's part of it, but at the center of it is Christ. That's why we want to be intentional. We want to have people share testimonies about what Christ has done and is doing in their lives. We want to give people opportunity at these fellowship meals to to share scripture that you've memorized, and maybe share why you've committed this text to memory, how that text has impacted you. Uh, We want to give you a chance to share uh, from the Word of God, to share a devotional thought that you had that has compelled your heart, that you want to encourage your brothers and sisters with. This is the substance of our proclamation, that sweet savior of sinners and sanctifiers of saints, Jesus Christ. That's his person, his work, and all of the implications that go with it. That's our proclamation. The third essential aspect is the manner of our ministry. We see that in verse 28, admonishing every man and teaching every man. There are two necessary components of this proclamation of Christ. It's admonishing and teaching. This word admonish, it means an earnest warning, an exhortation, or a correction. What we know is that admonition, it flows out of genuine concern for someone. There's a sense of urgency because there's impending harm. We recognize that we need to be exhorted. The Proverbs warn us that there are not many who will exhort us this way. It says, a man who flatters his neighbor in Proverbs 29.5 Is spreading a net for his steps. The world is filled with flatterers. But what we need is someone to admonish us, someone to help us to see our error, someone to help us see where we're not walking in line with Christ. And to that end, we must be willing to give each other admonition. We must be willing to engage one another with admonition when appropriate. Think of these principles from Proverbs. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the words of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. If we're tempted to withhold admonition, we need to ask ourselves, are we treating each other as friends or enemies? Proverbs 28.23, He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. Paul writes in in Romans 15.14, Concerning you, my brethren... I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. This ability to admonish one another is a mark of maturity, a mark of someone who has been further conformed to the image of Christ. When I ask the question I mean, it's easy to say, but why might we struggle to give admonition to one another? And how do we strive for faithfulness here? Why is it a temptation not to admonish one another? Feel like it's a good thing. Yeah. Fear that you're going to come across as, as judgmental. Sure. Yeah, why else? Yeah, mind your own beeswax. Yeah. Fear of man. I man. Yeah. I know the right thing to do is help this brother or sister see a blind spot, but then they might not like me. Yeah, who, who's central in those considerations? Carrie. Honestly, I, I haven't arrived, so what gives me the right to tell anybody else? Mm, mm. Yeah, to, to subtly conceive that the authority by which you would speak is your own arrival instead of the word of God. Absolutely. And all of these are our temptations. So how do we, how do we foster the kind of, of culture where we love each other enough to admonish one another? Graciously and kindly and lovingly. How do we? How do we strive for that? Yeah, yeah. A healthy dose of the fear of God, who calls us to this end. Sure. What else, Chrissy? Being willing to receive admonishment. Oh yeah, that's a two-way street. Yeah, I'm I'm eager to receive. So I'm not I'm not just eager to give. Like I'm excited to dish out some admonition this Sunday, but I'm ready to get some admonition. I actually want your help. I actually want you to admonish me because it breaks my heart that there are parts of my life that are not honoring Christ. It's the love of Christ that compels us. Right? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. It's the love of Christ that compels us considering what he has done for us. And Chrissy stole my thunder, but the second point is that we must be eager to receive admonition. Not only to dispense it, but to receive it. Proverbs 9.28 says, Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Proverbs 10.17, He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. It should be a red flag if, if you find yourself rejecting admonition. Even if it's brought to you in an unhelpful way. Even if it's brought to you in an unloving tone. It's your duty to receive that. And and perhaps you'll you'll be able to help your brother or sister in their delivery, but you ought to receive that. That's the grace of God tangibly delivered to you to show you something that needs to be further conformed to Christ. Proverbs 13.10 says, Through insolence comes nothing but strife, but wisdom is with those who receive counsel. We want to be those who receive counsel. Proverbs 17.10, A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding then a hundred blows goes into a fool. A fool is one who will hear time and again these these rebukes and reproofs and will conclude everybody else is wrong. That's not not the heart or attitude that we want to cultivate. I was reading a a book on on marriage and and the author was making the point that the husband, as, as the head of his wife, ought to invite this kind of feedback, this kind of critique, this kind of help uh, that would show him some of his errors. It doesn't just apply to, to the husband, that applies to all of us. What, what, what should we be reminding ourselves to help us to cultivate this attitude that I actually want admonition? What what should we remind ourselves to help us to embrace that? What's that? Yeah, we want we want to grow. We want to be refined. These people love us. Say again? These people love us. Yeah, absolutely. And my brothers and sisters love me, and they, they love me so much that they're willing to risk whatever uh, relational strife could could come. They, they, they care so much about me. Yeah, I should take this to heart. Both said humility, right? This is a grace of God that that we don't get to. Um, stay in this state where we think that we've arrived. No, we're we're reminded. We've not arrived. We've got more pressing on to do. This is the admonition that is component in our proclamation of Christ, but there's also a teaching component. That word teaching just means instruction in biblical truth. And as we proclaim Christ to one another, we realize that there's going to be a need for teaching about his person, his work, his word, and all of the implications. We need to be brought along in and taught how to think, how to believe, how to feel, and how to live. And apart from the official teaching ministry of the church, this should be happening at various levels in our relationships with one another, whether it be in the small group context of, of Bible studies, uh, in regular friendship and relationships, we think about uh, how much teaching is needed in how do I lead my family? How do I conduct family worship? How do I pray? How do I evangelize? How do I parent my kids in a way that honors the Lord? Uh, how do I steward the resources that God has entrusted to my care? We have a whole body of, of believers that we are to be uh, drawing from in, in terms of, of wisdom. So it's, it's older men teaching younger men. It's older women teaching younger women. It's the whole body teaching each other as we proclaim Christ as the substance of our proclamation, admonishing and teaching every man. Moving on to the fourth essential aspect, it's the resource of our ministry. The resource of our ministry. Colossians 1.28 says, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. If you thumb back to Colossians 1, you read in Paul's prayer in verse 9, he prays, That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So the wisdom that we're after here is is spiritual in nature. It's given by God. Paul says in Colossians 2-3, we already saw that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. So the, the treasures of divine wisdom are hidden in Jesus that are only accessible to us in him. But Paul is also cautious because there is a counterfeit kind of wisdom. If you look over at Colossians 2 and verse 20, we read of this counterfeit wisdom. He says, If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There's a kind of self-made religion. There's a so-called wisdom that has no gospel power. That's not the wisdom that we're interested in. We're interested in the wisdom of God delivered to us by Christ and codified in the word of God. The wisdom that we're after is the wisdom to live by by what God has said even when the world ridicules it. It's clinging to the wisdom of God in the gospel of Christ and knowing that he is going to accomplish his good and perfect ends, excuse me, through his wisdom. And I think practically the way that works out in our philosophy is we never want to be the church that says we do fill in the blank because that's how we've always done it because that's what seems right to us because that's what makes us feel good. Because that's just what we like. No, we want to be continually a church that's shaped by the scriptures. We do this because we believe this is the most faithful application of the wisdom delivered to us in the word of God. Let me show you what texts lead us to this conclusion. And we're not going to, to, to stand and say, we've got it right. We, 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 we've got this thing down. We've got it all, all perfectly ironed out. No, we are, we are under the word of God. And so as we collectively come to see things that we do that are not in line with the scriptures, we want to be willing to change. We want to forsake that old path if it was not in line with the word of God. And we want to be pressing on to maturity and faithfulness. This is the resource of our ministry. It's not drawing on human wisdom. It's drawing on divine wisdom that's delivered to us by Christ in the word of God. Fifth essential aspect of our ministry is the scope of our ministry, the scope of our ministry. Colossians 128, listen to the repetition of this one word, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. The threefold repetition of everyone, everyone, everyone. That is every single person that the Lord brings into our midst is to be recipient of this ministry. Regardless of who they are, regardless of what they look like, or what they enjoy, it's every person that the Lord would entrust to our stewarding care, our shepherding care. Anyone who comes into our presence, we are to minister in this fashion, The scope, is broad. We don't zoom in on the people that we're particularly drawn to. And, and this is a word for all of us. Think about it. Part of your consideration and thinking through who the Lord would have you specifically to care for and invest in. I mean, right away, from, from the outset, we're going to be a, a big enough body where it would be impossible for you to invest equally in each person. It's not feasible. You don't have enough time in the day to do that. So how are you going to, to focus on who you're going to care for? And one question for your consideration is, who might be on the outside, not feeling like they're a part of the everyone of Colossians one twenty eight? There ought not be any, and we should collectively strive that there wouldn't be any. We wouldn't allow there to be fringes where people are just on the outside and they never come into the life of this body. We should, we should do away with any sense of, of cliques and special groups and subcultures within the church. And instead, we should be all embracing and receiving others as Christ has received us, welcoming to everyone. Which takes intentionality. I mean, we're, we're creatures of habit. We, we gravitate toward what's comfortable, what's routine, uh, talking to this set of people. But we need to strive against that. And of course... In the Lord's wisdom, he's given us the freedom to establish deep friendships and we'll have deeper friendships with some people. But we always ought to be eager to be bringing in the everyone and drawing together the everyone because everyone is the scope of our ministry. Everyone that the Lord would bring into our midst. It's the fifth aspect. And finally, the, the sixth The sixth and final aspect of the scope of our ministry is, I'm sorry, the the strength of our ministry, the strength for our ministry. I'll get it right one of these times. (laughs) Verse 29, Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's the question, is Paul working or is God working? Yes. Yes. We see two works that coalesce together. This is a, a glorious mystery: the working of the human and the working of God, and particularly in the life of the believer, the believer is striving for Christ's likeness, but he's striving in the strength of the one who is at work within him. Paul records this reality in Philippians 2:12 and 13, where he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The wonderful mystery is that the God who is sovereign over absolutely everything is at work within our own hearts at the level of both willing our volitional capacity and doing our executing principle. This God is at work within us. And why that matters here is as we think through this, this paradigm, this blueprint. Of our philosophy for ministry at Emmanuel Bible Church, it'd be easy to say, like, man, that's a tall order. That's a, that's a lot of intentionality. That, that's going to uh, scrape at my flesh, and certainly it is. But we ought not respond with a, a sort of self-willed effort to, all right, I'm just going to go and do those things. I'm just going to white-knuckle it. I'm just going to make that happen, which can be our tendency But similarly, we ought not stand in the other ditch on the other side of the road that says, well, God's sovereign, so he doesn't need me, which is absolutely true. But that statement is used to draw a faulty conclusion. Therefore, I'm not going to obey him. How absurd. How absurd to say to God, because you are sovereign, I'm not going to obey you. That's not the kind of life we want to live. No, we want to instead draw strength from this reality. We want want to look to the one who is the substance of our proclamation, but who also gives the strength for that very proclamation as we proclaim Jesus to one another. We do so in in the strength that he provides. Uh, We do so not not resting um, on ourselves, uh, not resting in past experience or... Uh, any any degree of wisdom that he's granted you, you, we do this in the strength that he supplies. Uh, And it's designed that way intentionally. If you do something, but you do it in the strength of another, what's your tendency in terms of praise? Praise me or praise him? Praise him. It's in that recognition that we work these things out. I want to just close by asking a question. Did you guys think about this? I mean, I mean it's good that, that we have this season, the Lord has granted us to, to think about these things, to have these things on the forefront of our mind as we go into a work together as a team. Why do you think it's important that we recognize that proclaiming Christ is not solely the duty of the preacher or the pastor or the elder, Why is it important that we all own that as our corporate responsibility? Wow! Amen. Because we're commanded to. That's a very good reason. Yeah, God commands us to. Yeah. Why else? I think it brings a a sense of unity in the body. Sure. Yeah. it's It's not the elites over there and then us over here. It's. It's our team. This is us. This is what we are doing, Julia. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We, we we won't be if if we just relied on on one or two people to be the proclaimers of Christ in our congregation. What what impact does that have? That's that's like one percent of the assembly, right? Yeah. This is something that we're all doing, and certainly this would extend beyond. The walls of our church. Our, our evangelistic mission mission is following these same patterns. We proclaim Christ to the world, but we also proclaim Christ to one another. The other question that just occurred to me that would be worth asking is um, why does it matter that we see our need um, to hear the proclamation of Jesus? There's a tendency to think that's for unbelievers. Why does it matter that we recognize that we who are acquainted with Jesus? Who are in Jesus? Who have Jesus dwelling in us? Why does it matter that we see our need to hear Him proclaimed to us? Kathy. Uh, We are to not neglect our salvation. We need. If you own something and you don't take care of it, Mm. you know it becomes uh, neglected. Yeah. Really treasure that. Mm. be are reminded of it constantly. Um, the great treasure we have in our salvation. Mm. Amen. We, we need to remember this this treasure that we have. This is not just some objective historic accomplishment. Uh, this is ours for the enjoyment. Brian? I think so. we don't battle the flesh and well. bow. Yeah. One of us every day don't be in right. And we need to have a reminder of where our security is. hmm. Mm. Yeah, we're we're engaged in spiritual warfare, and this battle we're engaged in is spiritual, and we need to be reminded of the captain of our salvation, the hope of our security. Amen. Fred, he may have said it; but I just couldn't hear it. But I was gonna say it's we need to be re, it needs to be reinforced because of the culture mm. is constantly. We leave these this building of mm. the week the exception of Bible studies or whatever, we're, we're constantly being bombarded by right. the culture, which is completely opposite uh, in, in many ways. Right. Yeah, there's a sense in which we're being equipped. Uh, Lord willing, next week we're going to focus on, on that aspect. But as you're hearing Christ proclaimed by your brothers and sisters, you're being equipped and edified to, to go and do the same um, on the mission field, in your neighborhood, wherever. Uh, as someone amongst us, normally says, we are leaky. We often forget and we need to be reminded. Yeah, we leak. Uh, we, we, we are vessels with, with holes. We, we need to, to be constantly filled. Terry? We speak out of that which fills the heart. Mm. So we have to have this input yeah. in us so that it does come out. That's right. We, we speak out of the overflow of our hearts, whether for good or for evil. And so we need our hearts to be filled up with the loveliness of Jesus, with the glory of Christ, that would compel us to loose our lips to speak for Him. Chrissy, I was just thinking about what you said earlier. I mean, we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto mm. salvation, but also unto sanctification. That's right. Yeah, all of Christ for all of life, whether to to conversion or or to sanctification. Yeah, it's not. It's not a. It's not as though you start in the spirit and are you know, perfected in the flesh. Uh, no, it's, it's all of Christ. It's his glory that transforms us by degree. Uh, Mark? Uh, it reminds us of our need and prevents us from becoming proud. Amen. Yeah, it reminds us of our need. It, it militates against pride, uh, which we're all prone toward. Um, we, we need to be reminded of, of the darkness, the ugliness of our sin, and the wonder that God would save one such as us. And that, that frame ought to, to keep us humble and, and to free us from pride. Amen. Did I see one other hand? Bob. Uh, kind of what everybody's saying, so we don't lose our first love. Amen. Yeah. So we don't lose our first love. So we don't become, uh, was it Jack Hughes? Last week he was talking about tadpoles. Was that, was that on Saturday or Sunday? On Sunday. On Sunday, yeah. We don't just become these, these big-headed uh, tadpoles and we're kind of like, You've got at atrophied limbs, and, and, and we're excited about just precise theology and, and being esteemed in academic circles, uh, or, you know, looked at as, as holy ones. We, we become obsessed with, with us and what we can do. No, we're obsessed with Jesus, and, and we, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and, and think about how, how he could love me, a, a sinner condemned unclean. That, that's, that's where we stay. And it is the proclamation of Jesus that will keep us there, both from the pulpit and from the pew, both from those who are teaching formally and just in the context of our relationships in praxis groups and Bible studies and gatherings and men's and women's ministry and all of the various things that we do together. This is it. This is, this is our philosophy of ministry. I pray that, that the Lord would help us to own that and that he would bless the ministry as, as Jesus is proclaimed. Let me pray for us.